Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I ask you to find your way to the book of Jude, the next to the last book in the, in the New Testament. And as you're doing that, I see our ushers are coming by with an outline sheet they'll put in your hand. You can follow along the book of Jude this evening. We're looking at verses 14 through 16 as we look together at the prophecy of Enoch, Enoch's prophecy, Jude, verses 14 through 16. And we read, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Jude verses 14 to 16, our focus this evening, Enoch's prophecy. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Now, Father, I pray that You give us wisdom as on this first day of a new year, we look at an ancient prophecy and believe that we're closer today to its fulfillment than we could even imagine. And so in hope of that fulfillment, in preparation for that fulfillment, may our hearts be riveted by the Spirit of God to the Word of God. May we see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. May we understand that all of human history is pointing to the day when Jesus Christ comes again, when He rules and reigns and sits upon the throne of His father David, when He sets up His kingdom and rules from the city of peace, Jerusalem, when He gathers to Him all the nations. Until that day, Lord, may we pray, even so come. In hope of that day, Lord, may we learn from your word so that our hearts are ready and our voice is clear and unified together as people individually in a congregation together that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming and his coming is near at hand. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Back in May of 1983, U.S. News and World Report celebrated its 50th anniversary as a publication, and with the celebration of its 50th anniversary, they asked for journalists to speculate on what the next 50 years would bring. Of course, there were a number of wild and wacky speculations, but some of the predictions included the world would have floating cities, that there would be cities that were floating on the oceans. Sure enough, I just read that South Korea is launching the construction of a floating city in 2023, that that 50-year prophecy is somewhat coming to be fulfilled. It's going to be three pods attached by uh, two bridges off of South Korea, the three pods, one for living and one for research and one for work. Uh, Those three pods will have a population of some 10,000 people with an expectation that they can actually grow to 100,000 people. They also speculated in that edition of U.S. News and World Report, that there would be far more people living to the age of 100 and beyond within the next 50 years. And while that's true for some, unfortunately over the last two years, especially with the pandemic and fentanyl, uh, longevity in the United States of America in particular has actually gone down for the first time in 50 years. They spoke of the possibility of artificial organs and super drugs They spoke of the possibility of space colonies and domed cities 
and robots being common entities. Not so much in their speculation about transhumanism or wearable devices that are implantable in the brain. You see, we all share an innate curiosity about future things. We like to speculate about what the future will be, and we like to read about what others speculate the future will be. Especially this is true when it comes to the promises of God. Way back in the 1960s, Hal Lindsey wrote a book under the title, The Late Great Planet Earth, and immediately millions of volumes of that book were sold. In fact, by the 1990s, over 28 million volumes of The Late Great Planet Earth had been purchased. Then came Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and the Left Behind series, and no series of Speculation with regard to biblical prophecy has ever been so popular as the Left Behind series. Some 80 million copies of the various volumes of the Left Behind series have been put into publication and into print. If you're interested in future things and want to know what God has to say about it, then let me suggest that you're in the right place this New Year's Day night. Because as we open our Bibles this evening to the book of Jude, we discover in the book of Jude the oldest prophecy ever spoken by a man. A prophecy given by God, spoken by man. And the oldest prophecy given by God, spoken by man, is the prophecy that we read this evening in the book of Jude, verses 14 to 16. It's the prophecy of Enoch. The prophecy that we read this evening in these verses dates back some 5,800 years. That's a long time ago. But that's when Enoch walked on this earth. Enoch was the father of Methuselah, and even when he named his son Methuselah, he was speaking prophetically. The name Methuselah, after all, means when he is gone, it will come. Enoch walked with God, we know, and he was not, for God took him. But Enoch was a prophet of God, favored of God. Favored of God, for God took him and absolved him of the need of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He went, much as the church will go, in a raptured form, bypassing the valley of the shadow of death, straight into the arms of the Lord. Enoch lived before the flood destroyed the world. Enoch is the great-grandfather of Noah. He is, according to the text that we've read, and according to the genealogy of the Old Testament, the seventh from Adam. There was Adam, Seth, Enos, Kenan, Malaleel, and Jared. You say, well, pastor, that's six. But you have to understand that the Hebrews counted inclusively. So the Hebrews would have included Enoch in this count, and so he's the seventh from Adam. And Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5 places him in the hall of fame. For God took him, and he was not. Listen, Enoch is the only prophet who lived before the flood whose words remain for us to consider this evening. There were no books of the Bible written before the flood. There's no historic record, nor is there any verbal record of the conversations of the people who lived before the, the flood came. But Enoch lived before the flood, and his words are found for us here in the book of Jude, verses 14 to 16. As we open our Bibles to the book of Jude this evening, I want you to know that I believe the Jude, verses 14 to 16, is a literal prophecy spoken by a literal man who lived 5,800 years ago before the flood 
And that man is Enoch. I believe that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was inspired by the Spirit of God to record for us the words of an antediluvian, a person who lived before the flood. But these words are included in the canon of Scripture. They have been received, they have been disseminated, and they are profitable for our admonition. Now, there's controversy when you come to the book of Jude, verses 14 to 16. And the controversy swirls around the question, is this really the inspired Word of God? And are these really the words of Jude? And it's understandable that there'd be such controversy. After all, we are talking about the only extant words of a person who lived before the flood, other than those words that are inscripturated by Noah and those who lived during his time. How then do these words come to be in this text? And why, pastor, would there be a controversy? Well, there's an apocryphal book by the title of Enoch. The apocryphal book by the title of Enoch was written between 100 and, or 300 rather, and 100 BC. It's actually a very large section of the apocrypha. It comes in three sections, the apocryphal book of Enoch. It explains the reasons for the flood. It explains the origins of demons. It speaks of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, but it's an apocryphal book. Pastor, what's an apocryphal book? Apocryphal books are those books that are between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the genuine Word of God, the canonized Word of God in the Old Testament, and the canonized Word of God in the New Testament. There are apocryphal books, like the book of Enoch. These books were written between the testamental times. They were measured by the apostles. They were considered by the early church. They were not found suitable for placing in the Bible. Well, why weren't they found suitable for placing in the Bible? Because Jesus never quoted them. Because they're not written by the apostles. Because they contain contradictions to other passages of Scripture because they were not widely disseminated, neither have they been spiritually profitable in the church. And so these books have been set aside. But wait a minute. Jude is quoting from an apocryphal book. That's troublesome. He's quoting from an apocryphal book, but folks, he's doing it under the power of the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so it's no longer troublesome. Because he does it under the power of the inspiration of God, and the book of Jude has been given to us by the Spirit of God, included in our New Testament canon, then yes, I end where I started. I believe that the words that we read are literally the words of Enoch the prophet, and they're meritorious for us in our consideration of what God would have us to know. Jude, after all, uses portions of 2 Peter, in fact, when you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and read the book of Jude side by side, you're going to see many, many parallels. Jude is borrowing from other sources, if you will, whether it be Enoch or Peter, as the Spirit of God led him. For as a man of God being led of the Spirit of God, we read in 2 Peter chapter 1 that he was led or moved along, borne along by the very wind of the Spirit of God and what he wrote. He had intended to write about the common salvation. But the Spirit of God moved him in a different direction. And instead, as a preface to the book of the Revelation, Jude helps us understand how we should look with discernment 
at the apostasy that is rising in the end times. For evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And so we read and study the book of Jude to understand what it will be like, and what these apostates would appear to be in the end times. And in a time in which it's very unpopular to speak about God's judgment, and very unpopular to speak about the evil of apostasy, very unpopular to speak about sin, and even unpopular now to speak about the return of Christ, we turn intentionally to the book of Jude this evening, and on this first day of a new year, we look at the book of Jude and we ask, Lord, what was it that Enoch said 5,800 years ago? What are the words, the most ancient words of any prophet that we can consider as we enter into this new year? And the answer is found in Jude, verses 14 to 16. And this is what Enoch said. In verse 14, we read that Enoch said, Behold, the Lord came, literally. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh, it says, Pastor Phelps. Yes, it says cometh. But Enoch is speaking in a very unusual manner in the Greek language. He's speaking in something called the prophetic future. It's the language of certainty. And so you can literally translate these, the most ancient words of this ancient prophet, this way. Behold, the Lord came. So certain of the Lord's coming in judgment. He speaks of it as if it's already happened. And he gives to us a detailed description. Listen, a detailed description, not of the first coming of Christ. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Enoch moves beyond that. And he moves to the second coming of Christ and of the coming of Christ in judgment. You remember that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus and he said, we're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The epiphany, that appearing beyond all appearings when Jesus will come in his glory. That's what filled the heart of Enoch when he spoke even before the flood destroyed the earth. The first prophecy given through a man warns the world to be ready in prospect of the coming of Christ to judge the earth. I want you to notice with me the people who will accompany Christ when he comes to judge the earth. I love the words of Wesley's great hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. I wonder if Wesley was meditating on this passage when he wrote these words. Lo, he comes with clouds descending once for every sinner slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in glorious majesty. Those who set it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. Those dear tokens of his passion still his dazzling body bears. Cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshipers. Lo, he comes. Verse 14 says, the Lord came with 10,000 of his saints. The coming of Jesus will be spectacular. After all, he'll be coming with his angels. Take your Bibles and put a mark here in the book of Jude. And as you do that, turn back with me to the book of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. The holy angels will come with Jesus when he comes again in judgment. We seldom consider angels. 
The Jews during the time of Christ were so attuned to spiritual forces round about and so attuned to the consideration of angels that the rabbis actually taught children in the synagogue schools that if they pitched a rock behind them when they were taking rocks out of the garden, they should say, excuse me. They should say, excuse me, because they might have accidentally hit an angel which is hovering over their shoulder. Our world is filled with angelic beings. They're all about us. We simply don't see them. In the Old Testament, from time to time, the angelic beings are demonstrated in visible form so as to convince those who were doubting of the great presence of the Lord through His angels. The Bible teaches us much about angels. They're spoken of over 300 times in the Bible. In fact, more than half of the books in the Bible speak to us about the angels. And especially when it comes to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the angels are present. We read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, that a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the judgment was said, and the books were opened. We read here in Matthew chapter 25, the 31st verse, that when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, then in verse 32, and before Him shall be gathered all the nations. He's coming, singularly spectacular in His coming. Every eye shall see Him. But he's coming surrounded by the greatness of the angels and the angelic forces. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 affirms this. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says in verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The angels are immensely powerful. The eighth psalm says that we who are human are created a little lower than the angels. They're immensely powerful. God dispatched one angel into Egypt and every firstborn son died on the night of the Passover. God dispatched one angel into the Assyrian camp and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died in that night outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Here, we read that at the coming of Christ, He'll be attended by thousands of thousands. In fact, Jude is speaking of a myriad. An innumerable company of angels will come with him at his coming. The word that's given to us in this passage as we turn back to the book of Jude, chapter 14. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. The word that's used there for the word saints is literally holy one. And so, yes, we would include the angels in that gathering, and we would include the saints. We would include the saints, along with the angels who accompany Jesus at His coming. The Lord's people will be accompanying Him as well. The saints will be with Him. Zechariah 14 says in verse 5, The Lord my God shall come, and all of His saints. Colossians 3 and verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Take your Bibles again. We're still marking Jude verse 14, but turn over to the book of the Revelation, the book of the Revelation chapter 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says in verse 13, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love to the end that you may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 
with all his saints. A lady was talking to her pastor. Their pastor asked her, are you ready for heaven? She said, oh yes, pastor, I have my one-way ticket to heaven. And he very wisely said to her, one-way ticket? Yes, she said, I'm not coming back. And he said, then you're going to miss out on an awful lot. If you've opened your Bible to the book of the Revelation, the 19th chapter, you discover in verse 12 that we read, that we see one coming whose eyes are a flame of fire. In verse 13, who is this one coming whose eyes are a flame of fire? Well, he's the one who's clothed with a vesture that's been dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. He's none other than the living Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he's coming in his glory and retributive justice and judgment upon the earth. And note what we read in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine linen, white and clean. And who in heaven is clothed with white linen, fine and clean? Well, surely the saints, the church triumphant, the blood washed, redeemed of all the generations. For they will be at the great supper of the Lamb, and they will wear the robes of righteousness that He has provided for those who love Him. And where are they now in Revelation 19? They're coming as the armies of heaven, clothed in these white linen garments, attending Him along the way. Yes, when Jesus comes again in judgment, the church, you and I, will be coming with Him. And Enoch saw that. Enoch spoke of that before the flood. And so when we come back to the book of Jude, the 14th verse, Enoch, this seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints, a myriad of his holy ones, an innumerable host, seven generations after Adam when you count inclusively. Enoch clearly saw the second coming of Jesus Christ. Spectacular. The second coming of Jesus Christ surrounded by the angels and surrounded by the saints. This, the first prophecy that we know spoken through the lips of a man, preserved for us in Scripture, speaks to us of the coming of the Lord and speaks to us of the purposes that He accomplishes in this coming. It's amazing. Before Jesus lived, before Jesus died, before Jesus rose again, before Jesus ascended up into heaven, before the floodwaters were upon the earth, Enoch spoke of the purpose of Christ's great coming in glory. And Enoch spoke of the fact that he will execute judgment. He speaks of the condemnation of all in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all, upon all, all, not just the terrorist, not just the murderers, not just the child molesters, upon all. There'll be no holdouts. There'll be no one who will be able to find a hiding place. Our Lord's purpose in this glorious coming, according to Revelation 20, and verse 12 is to do 
the work of judging. We saw in Revelation 19 that his garment is clothed with blood. He comes to do the work of judging over all. This judgment is inclusive. And he comes with this purpose to convince every lost soul to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. The Bible tells us there's a day coming when every mouth will stop and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There'll be no argument at His coming. There'll be no claim of innocence at His coming. At His coming, He comes to judge all. Your neighbor across the street, perhaps, will appear at that judgment. That family member who's not yet accepted Christ may appear at that judgment. For you remember that Matthew 25 says He'll come with His angels and all the world will be gathered before Him. You say, Pastor, that seems almost impossible. There are eight billion people on the planet. How can they all be gathered together in one place? More impossible is the resurrection, and yet the resurrection is going to happen, and the saints will come triumphant with Him. As mysterious as the very source of life, even so as mysterious the second life given. As mysterious as all things continuing as they have, it seems, as the world spins on its axis year by year. Even so, the great God who created you and allowed you to follow the thoughts that are being shared this evening has the capacity to come and do the work of judgment upon all that are upon the earth, and all will stand before Him, and all will be convinced, and every mouth will be silenced, and every argument of innocence will be turned away when He comes in judgment. He will judge of their lifestyle when He comes. In verse 15, we read that He judges them of all their ungodly deeds their actions. Jude seems to stutter a little bit on this word ungodly. Those who seek to write well understand the peril of redundancy, that it's wise to use different words, synonyms, if you will, to express your thoughts so that people don't turn away from that which is redundant or become bored in the reading of it. And yet here in verse 15, the Spirit of God has encouraged Jude to use the word ungodly over and over and over again to convince all the ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners, in fact, in the book of Jude, you'll find the word ungodly used six times. The word ungodly starts in the Greek language with the prefix ah, which means not. It's a word that, said, that speaks this way, asabias, not sabias, not those who revere, not those who have awe, not those who see the holiness of God and fall down before it, not those. He's speaking of these who are ungodly. We would say it this way, the ungodly are those who see no reverence, who practice no reverence, who give no awe to God, who don't see God in His glory and His holiness and His judgment and His power and His omnipotence. Who are the ungodly? Who is He speaking of when He uses this word over and over and over again? They are those who take the, the God of heaven lightly, who see Him as Father but don't see Him as the Word of God tells us and Jesus tells us we ought to pray, our Father which is in heaven. 
Yes, he's near at hand, but he's far away. He's to be revered. And we're not to take the God of heaven lightly. We're not to enter into a relationship with God with no assumption of the fear of the Lord as the foundation of that relationship. And so he speaks in this passage of God's judgment against all those who are ungodly. He's speaking of the irreverence of the generation that is surely going to be judged. And as we head into 2023, if there's an observation from your pastor that I can share over many years of ministry, with great concern, it's this observation. We're watching over a culture that is increasingly irreverent. Reverence to God, awe for God, ought to be seen in various societal places as norms. And surely when it comes to coming into the church, the house of the living God, there ought to be some demonstration of reverence. Mm, Boy, that's not a popular conversation, Pastor. How are we going to reach our community if we don't look like our community, sound like our community, talk like our community? Friend, if we're looking and talking and sounding like our community, we've forgotten the reverence that God deserves. This isn't the house of the community. This is the house of the Lord. We've lost that many churches. This is what Enoch saw before the flood, the coming of the Lord against all those who have lost their reverence. We've forgotten the languages of reverence. What are you talking about? Well, in lifestyle, there are certain languages of reverence that are spoken. Surely in our lifestyle choices, there are languages of reference that, of reverence rather that are spoken in how we dress. A couple of years back, we had the opportunity to visit Vice President Pence's office. We got the notice that we'd be able to visit his office at the last minute. I had packed, not really thinking through that we'd be going to the Vice President's office. I knew we'd be going on a Wednesday night to church there in the D.C. area, and so I packed a sweater vest and a tie. thought that's good enough on a Wednesday night. That's fine. I'm showing reverence and dignity for the church that we'll be attending. I think that's how others will be dressed. Probably others won't even have a tie. Well, we got invited to go to the vice president's office, and there I was in my sweater vest. If you're not informed about this, let me just warn you. I was the only guy in the White House in a sweater vest. Boy, did I feel out of place. I squirmed a little bit. I'm not used to this, you know. I'm the guy that little children think wears a suit to Home Depot. (laughs) It's not true. Let the rumor be put to rest. But I found myself speaking the wrong language in how I dressed in the White House. Even so, today in the churches around our country, but not necessarily around the world. But our country leads the world in irreverence. We lead the world in irreverence with regard to how we dress when we go to church. We lead the world in irreverence with how we sing to a holy God. We lead the world in irreverence with regard to lifestyle choices. And by the way, we're polluting the world with our irreverence. I remember years ago, writing to a missionary in Africa, I was coming over to speak. And I said, how shall I dress when I get there? Oh, he said khakis and, a, khakis and a suit jacket, that'd be enough. I packed khakis and a suit jacket, and I stood up to preach in Africa in front of a group of Africans that were all wearing three-piece suits, ever so elegantly dressed. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm in a sport jacket, tie, and khaki pants, and I'm fine. This is what the missionary told me to wear. But I realized as I looked around, I was the least well-dressed among the whole group of Africans. And it crossed my mind in preaching around the world, whether it be in migrant farms in Mexico or in the villages in Myanmar or in far-off Africa or Cambodia, places around the world where I've spoken, whether it be in Ukraine or Belarus. In all these places, people do their very best, but not necessarily in America anymore. Why? Ungodly deeds. He's speaking of a lack of reverence. Our public assemblies that used to be marked by reverence, whether it be in the church or the school or the political forum, where reverence was demonstrated by not only the salute to the flag, but perhaps the saying of the Lord's Prayer and opening that political conduct in prayer. These things are remnants of a bygone era. Respect, after all, has been lost in every capacity. And so we read the words of Enoch, that the coming of Christ is to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly, irreverent, without awe toward God among them of all their ungodly deeds. This is their lifestyle choices, which they have ungodly committed, and of their language choices, their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They're known not only by their lifestyle, but they're known by their language, their hard speeches, which these irreverent, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. For out of the abundance of the heart, the Word of God reminds us in Matthew 12 and verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And again, let me, let me share with you that this is another indicator of irreverence and ungodliness that's come into our culture. Whether it be in politics or even in church conversation. Did you know that when the scribes were making a new copy of the Old Testament, there was no printing press. Gutenberg had not yet developed movable type. There was no printing press. And so when the scribes made copies of the Old Testament with their quill and ink, whether they were writing on vellum or parchment, as they would begin to write and write in the Hebrew language, every time they came to the writing of the word Yahweh, the most sacred name for God, the covenant name of the God of Israel, when they came to the name Yahweh, they'd get a new quill, they get new ink. More than that, that would have been inconvenient. Before writing the name Yahweh, they'd take a ceremonial bath, they'd change their clothes, and with their new quill and their new ink, they would write simply the first letter. They would not write all of the letters, thinking that itself would be irreverent. Why did they go to such, such lengths when simply writing the name Yahweh? Well, they had read what the Old Testament says. God's commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for he will not hold guiltless those who take his name in vain. So careful were they about the name of God that they sought to show reverence for God by changing their clothes, taking a bath, getting a new quill before even writing that one letter, our letter J, their first letter for Jehovah or Yahweh. We hear the name of the Lord taken in vain so often. It's become so familiar. Whether it be on the television or an expression, probably the number one expression of surprise in America today is, oh my, rather than take the name of the Lord in vain, I'm not even going to say it. 
We have Christians today who haven't figured out that when they say, gee, they're simply using a euphemism for the name of Jesus. When they say, gosh, they're simply using a substitute word for the name God. Look it up. Those are in the dictionary. Oh, be careful, dear Christian. What comes out of your mouth reveals your heart. The story is told of an old Scottish preacher who went into a glass factory and saw the great blast furnace stood back from the terrible heat. And as he did, he shook his head. And he said, oh God, what hell must be like? So real to him was the character of God in judgment that he couldn't help but express himself. And one of the workers there in the factory just hearing that old Scottish preacher show his reverence to the judgment of God sought the preacher out after his visit and came to know Christ as Savior. Would to God that we would have that kind of reverence. That we would consider that when we talk of the judgment of God and we see the Lord Jesus Christ with a two-edged sword coming upon the great white horse from heaven and his robes dipped in the blood, that we'd recognize that those surrounding saints that come with him, the myriad of innumerable saints who were seen by Enoch of old, that myriad may be witnessing the very judgment of God that's pending upon some that we love. So he speaks in this passage of these things, the persons that accompany the Savior and the purpose that he accomplishes. But he also gives to us a portrait of those who are accountable in the day of judgment. That portrait is reiterated over and over and over again in the book of Jude. The Spirit of God wants us to have some identifiers, to have a portrait that's crystal clear so we will know of whom is he speaking when he speaks about the apostates. In verse 16, another carefully painted portrait is given to us. He paints a portrait of those who are going to be judged when he said, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Let me suggest that he speaks of those who are disobedient. Those who are disobedient. Jude calls them murmurers. This is a Greek word, it's onomatopoeic, and so it sounds like it sounds like what they're doing. They have a grumbling spirit. It may not be loud, but it's always present. These apostates are always grumbling because after all, they're always dissatisfied. They're murmurers, complainers. Literally, they are fault finders. They seek to place blame for the situation that they are involved in. They're never satisfied with their lot. Always struggling to have a spirit of contentment. B.B. McKinney wrote the hymn, Satisfied with Jesus. And in the hymn, he wrote these words, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my Savior satisfied with me? Turning the question from personal satisfaction to His satisfaction can make a huge difference as we enter into the new year. Lord, are you satisfied with how I'm living? For the apostates never demonstrate satisfaction. After all, they're desire-motivated. The passage tells us, with their mouths they speak great and swelling things, but before that we read, they walk after their own lust. They walk after their own lust. 
They're living for their flesh. They're living for their personal desires. They're living to enjoy that gusto. They are double-tongued. They speak great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In order to get what they want, they're flatterers. They're those who use great and swelling words, extravagancies in language for personal advantage. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Who are the apostates? Well, they're disobedient ones who are disfatticized with the things of God, living by, driven by their desires and speaking with double tongues. And in Romans 16, we read in verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine whereof you have learned, and avoid them. The book of Romans, we have to remember, is written to a local church in the city of Rome. And the Roman believers are in contact with some who cause divisions. And the Roman believers are in contact with some who cause offenses, contrary to the doctrines which they had learned. And they're being admonished, now avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, there's those words used for advantage. They deceive the hearts of the simple. What did Enoch, the most ancient of the prophets, speak of? Oh, he spoke of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked beyond the life of Christ. He looked beyond Calvary. He looked beyond the ascension. He looked beyond the mystery of the church for which we rejoice this evening. But he saw with clarity that great day that's posted on God's calendar, that day that's closer today than it's ever been before. He spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ in majesty. He spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ with the purpose of silencing the world. The very first prophecy of any ancient man that we have recorded is the prophecy of Enoch. And you know what? It matches the last prophecy that were given by any man that's recorded for us. What's that last prophecy? Well, the Apostle John was told to write at the end of the book of Revelation, surely I come quickly. And I can't help but think as we enter into 2023, how near at hand the Lord's coming must be as we see the indicators that Jude speaks of so clearly, growing so rapidly. May our eyes be looking upward and may we be saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. Father, we've looked in the Word of God this evening. May it be to our profit and may it be to the changing of our characters and may we be found living for your glory as a new year dawns. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.